Well, we've reached uh, the halfway point to the book of Ephesians, at least as far as chapters go. And we are ready, therefore, at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I spoke about Paul being a prisoner of the Lord when we looked at Ephesians 3, verse 1, but just to kind of briefly review the points made then, Paul was a prisoner of Christ Jesus in more than one way. One, he was literally in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. If you remember the reading from the end of the book of Acts, he goes back to Jerusalem, even though he's warned that bonds await him there. And sure enough, they converge on him with a, um, a mob, and they wanted to beat him to death. But the Roman soldiers came and intervened and took him up. They were going to scourge him. He said, I'm a Roman citizen. So then uh, he was brought before the Jewish accusers, and uh, they ended up going and standing before Felix, and uh, then he appealed to Caesar, and they said, okay, well, to Rome, then you will go. So he went to Rome and was under house arrest while he waited his trial there, and that's ultimately where he died, in Rome. But So he's a prisoner in the literal sense of being in prison for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ Jesus, a prisoner of the Lord. But secondly, he was a prisoner of the Lord in the same way that everyone else is, as a Christian, every Christian is, the one oftentimes leads to the other. The one kind of prisoner uh, leads to being another kind of prisoner. And that he was taken captive by Christ in love when he was converted. That's what happened in Acts chapter 9. He was taken captive by Christ. He described, he described himself as a bond slave in a number of places, which is really very little different from being a prisoner and essentially it means you have no will of your own. There is only one boss who's calling the shots, and that's Christ. He is the one who is in charge, and it is his will that matters. Which is why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He then says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with which you have been called. The KJV has beseech, and the ESV has urge. So it's one of those words that connotes an urgency to the request. Paul's not uh, politely asking if the Ephesian Christians would walk worthy. He's begging them to, which means that he must think it's fairly important for Christians to behave themselves in a God-honoring way. And that shows how deeply he cares about God's name and whether God's name is glorified or not. Most people that you meet in this world care a lot about their own name and about their own reputation, about looking good for themselves and making a good impression for their own sake. But Paul is solicitous for the glory of God and it's as if he's saying, please don't make a profession of faith in Christ and then conduct yourselves like the devil. Please don't live like a fool. 
Don't imitate the world and do what everyone else is doing out there. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been, you have been called. I implore you. I implore you. This worthy of the calling with which you've been called. To be a Christian is to be called by God. And he's not talking here about your vocation or your, your occupation in life. He isn't referring to a call to preach the gospel here. You know, those who are called to preach the gospel. He's referring here to the entire church in Ephesus. And he's referring to that call that every Christian has on his or her life. It's a call out of darkness into light and out of spiritual death into life, out of the world and into the church, called to salvation, called to obedience and discipleship, called to a heavenly inheritance. There's a number of passages that talk about that. One is Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12 says, To this very end, to this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. That sounds very similar to the way he's talking here in Ephesians 4. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Paul says to Timothy, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we have this high and holy and heavenly calling and that means there's a certain way that we need to conduct ourselves in light of it. Think about the, uh, the expectations and obligations incumbent upon royalty. If you're a prince or a princess, you're supposed to behave yourself with dignity and integrity. You're supposed to have good manners and good ethics. Uh, unfortunately, that is not often the case with the princes and princesses in the history of the world. They probably have good manners at the dinner table and, you know, in, in upper society and so forth, but maybe little else as far as morals go. Um, many times they bring, behave terribly and bring reproach on their royal family name. But if there's an expectation like that for human princes, and if it is a disgrace to bring reproach 
on a mere human royal family name, then how much more for us, the children of God? We too are part of a royal family. We have a father who is the king of all. We weren't born into it, but we were adopted into it. We were street urchins, essentially, living in squalor and filth. And he brought us out of that and brought us into the royal family of God. He showered us with amazing blessings and privileges. But that comes with responsibility. There's a way we should then walk in this world as adopted sons and daughters of God. And there is a way we should not walk. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul likewise exhorted the other New Testament churches. In Colossians 1, 9 through 12, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So it's praying for them so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Philippians 1.27 He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, he says, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, Maybe it sounds like he's bragging there, but he's just trying to show them that I practiced what I preach here. I was not a hypocrite. Uh, Remember how we behaved devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So how? How are Christians to walk worthy of their calling? Paul mentions here five principal ways, four of them in verse 2 and one in verse 3. And all of them are summed up in love. They're all expressions of love, which is what we should expect knowing as we do that love is the chief um, fruit. Uh, Love sums up the entire law and the prophets. Humility is the first one. If you would walk worthy of your calling, you must walk humbly. We have been called to be humble. Micah 6.8 He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Isaiah 66, 1-2 tells us, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit 
and who trembles at my word. That's the one God will look to. Christianity is not for the proud and not for those who are disinterested in crucifying their pride. It's for the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And the very first thing is haughty eyes. Now, if you're not interested in humility, you're not interested in Christianity. The two go together. If I was born dead in sin, which I was, and if God has, by his great mercy and love, raised me up through faith with Christ and saved me by grace, not as a reward for my good works, but for his glory and by his grace, then it's only fitting that I should walk in humility, not pride. What is there to be proud of? If I didn't earn this calling, which I didn't, if I didn't deserve it, which I don't, if I was treated according to strict justice, I would be in hell already. I'm not better than anyone else. So how inappropriate would it be then and how obtuse to walk in pride? Life doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around Christ. And Christians know that. False Christians and lost people don't. Humility and love go together. They're inseparable. Gentleness is the second thing. You are called to walk worthy by walking in gentleness. You have a calling to be gentle. And that's not just for the sisters, it's for the brothers. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the gentle or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus was gentle or meek. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. There's those two words right there, gentle and humble. Paul and his ministry companions were gentle. First Thessalonians 2.7, he says, But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And in James 3, 14-17, the apostle says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So if we would walk worthy of the calling with which we have received, we will be gentle with other people, not harsh, not rough, not rude, not abrasive. Again, this is an outworking of love. Love is the chief and principal fruit of the Spirit, and all the others are inseparably connected with it, including gentleness. If I love God and I desire to please Him, and if I love other people, then I will deal gently with them. Love causes you to do that. On the other hand, self-love results in harshness 
with other people. The third is patience. If we would walk worthy, we must be patient with other people. We are called to it. Patience is another fruit of the Spirit and an outworking of love. It's also translated long-suffering. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, you see the connection with love, love is patient. Love is kind. If I love other people, I will be patient with them. They may not mature at the speed that I would like them to, but I will be patient with their immaturity, remembering that I too stumble in many ways. Maybe I'm not as mature as I could be. That's an indisputable fact, actually. And maybe others have been patient with me. Maybe they're being patient with me right now. Other people may have habits that are strange to me or to you, disagreeable. But if we love them, we will be patient with them, remembering that we're not perfect either. Love for God and for others leads to patience. Self-love, on the other hand, goes together with impatience. It's self-love that causes me to want everything to be done my way. And then I'm impatient with those who don't see it my way and get in my way. Self-love desires all the attention and it makes me very impatient with anybody else who's getting the attention or trying to get it. Self-love makes me very insistent on my own view in every matter and very impatient with anyone else that could think differently. But this all starts with an understanding of how patient God has been with us. If we don't think God has been patient with us because we're awesome and what could there possibly be in us to be patient about? I mean, we, we came off the assembly line good to go. Then we're not going to be patient with other people, with other sinners. This is the same principle that Jesus taught in the parable about forgiveness, where you have a man being forgiven 10,000 talents, hypothetically, and yet goes out and chokes his neighbor who owes him 100 denarii, far, far less money than what he had owed. Why did he do that? Because he had no sense of his own sin and the magnitude of his own debt that he was forgiven. And so if we don't think God has exercised any patience with respect to us, we're not going to be patient with other people. The fourth expression here of love is uh, for walking worthy and how we are to do that is to show tolerance for one another in love. The ESV has bearing with one another in love and the KJV has forbearing. And the word means to hold oneself up erect against to endure and to bear with. It's similar to being patient with people, but it seems to have a slightly different nuance. You may find something that's just insufferable about someone else, but you are called to suffer it because that is what it means to walk worthy and to show tolerance for one another in love. And as always, Christ is our great example here. He has shown us the way, not just by his teaching, but by his, his practice. Think of how he dealt with the disciples on three different occasions, telling them they needed to humble themselves and that the greatest was the servant. Or is wanting to know who's the greatest. 
One of those occasions was on the night in which he was betrayed, which is shocking. Which means that after three years of discipling them, they're still blindly devoted to seeking personal greatness and in the wrong way. So the previous rebukes had apparently fallen on deaf ears. They didn't have ears to hear it. And if you think about it, that's pretty insufferable. Arguing about who the greatest, how pathetic, how immature and imbecile. Grasping for personal glory, advancement over others, and yet Christ bore with them and showed tolerance for them in love. Jesus didn't say to them, you know what, this is the third time I am done with you losers. He rather gently rebuked them again. Listen to his words, Luke 22, 24 through 30. There arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's amazing gentleness and patience and tolerance and love. But it also shows us that tolerance and love doesn't mean that you don't rebuke things that are sinful or unbecoming. It means that you do so gently. And if they do it seven times, you forgive them seven times. And if more, 70 times seven. The fifth example is in verse three, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So if we would walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, then we need to be diligent to preserve Christian unity. And notice the wording there, being diligent to preserve unity of the Spirit. So unity is not something that we have to create. It's something that we have already and need to preserve. In John 17, 20-23, Jesus prayed that his disciples, present and future disciples, would be one and be perfected in unity. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that would be us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You'll hear many well-meaning Christians and even pastors complain that we have frustrated Christ's prayer and robbed him of what he desired. But Christ was praying to the Father here, not pleading with the disciples. And think about that. Are we to believe that the Father refused his request? 
Did Jesus ask that the disciples be perfected in unity so that the world would know that the Father sent him and loved the disciples even as the Father loved Christ? And do we suppose that the Father replied, well, let me think about that. Um, no. I seriously doubt that. Did the Father try to answer the prayer, but he was thwarted by the all-powerful free will of Christians who just won't have it? I don't think so. I think that we have the unity that Christ prayed for, and that's why Paul says preserve. That's why he uses the word preserve rather than create or procure. Every Christian has a bond with every other true Christian through the Holy Spirit. You maybe know this the best when you go and meet somebody you've never met before who's a believer and just immediately you have this connection with them. The Spirit of Jesus is in me. The Spirit of Jesus is in you. The Spirit of Jesus is in every true Christian. And that means that there is this bond and fellowship and this love and shared devotion and commitment to Christ that fosters a natural affinity with each other. But... That doesn't mean we are as devoted to unity as we could be. And it doesn't mean that we are as diligent as we could be to preserve it. We kind of have to take those two things, Christ's prayer and what we're seeing here and hearing here by Paul together. We know that we still have a sinful flesh. And what is the fruit of that flesh in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit? Well, if you read in Galatians 5... 19 and following, you'll see enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. A whole lot of the fruit of the flesh is things that have to do with people quarreling with each other. And we need to recognize that wherever we go and wherever we, wherever we are, we bring along with us this quarrelsome little jerk that likes to pick fights, that likes to stir the pot, that likes to find the one area or two or three in which we don't see things eye to eye and camp on that. It's like the little thread sticking out from the, <laughs> the, the, the fabric, you know, I'll go pick that, pick that and pull on that one. And that jerk needs to be crucified. That way we can preserve the unity of the spirit. There's a wicked principle in us, in our flesh, that wants to discover if there's some area in which we can disagree with another Christian. And if we find it, to obsess about it, bring it up repeatedly, harp on it, and take the spark we find there and pour gasoline all over it. Until it erupts into a major blaze. And you who are parents of more than one child, think about this. It is, a, is it a difficult thing to get your children arguing and quarreling with one another? Do they need your help in that? Yeah, do you ever have someone, do you ever have one of your children come up and say, Mommy, can you help me fight with my brother? Do you have to teach them how to do this? Is this like part of the curriculum? Wouldn't you agree that quarreling is easy for children, but getting along with each other is the great challenge? And isn't the reason that children need supervision, not just so that they won't harm themselves, but so they won't harm each other? 
We're born this way. We're born selfish and wanting our own way and quarrelsome and ready and eager to argue with everyone and everybody, our parents included, to get what we want. And this is why in Psalm 46, 9, in referring to God's great power, he makes mention of making wars to cease rather than stirring up wars as evidence of God's power. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. It's like giving us a demonstration of God's power. Getting nations to fight and war with one another requires very little. Just leave. (laughs) It's all you have to do. Men are already inclined to it. They're already itching to get at each other's throats. But to get them to have peace, now that's power. But born again Christians have the Spirit of God, and we've been given the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we're not in the same condition we were at birth. We're not in the same condition we were as unregenerate people, certainly. Nevertheless, there is diligence required to preserve the unity of the Spirit because of that presence of the quarrelsome flesh. We have to be diligent to preserve the unity of uh, the Spirit and the bond of peace. It takes diligence. So we've got this jerk we're carrying around with us in our flesh who likes to disrupt unity. And then we also have a devil who to contend with, and dissension is one of his primary weapons. He loves destroying unity in churches. He loves church splits. He loves marital fights and divorce. He loves it when it can get Christians to fight with each other, especially over unnecessary things. He loves it when he can get us to make much of our few differences and very little of all the things that we have in common. He loves it when he can get us to treat every belief and every conviction we have as a hill to die on. He loves it when he can drive people into complete isolation because they can't find a church that perfectly matches up with their personal doctrinal statement. He loves it when he can persuade us to be so easily offended that we leave the church the minute someone crosses us or corrects us about something. And sinful flesh is such a perfectly fitted glove for his hand. We cannot be lazy about this, about preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We have to be diligent about it. We have to want it, think about it, and how to preserve it. It has to be a priority for us. We have to work at it. So how do we implement that command to be diligent, to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? There's a number of practical ways, but I want to make a clarification first. We're not talking about false unity Paul's not talking about a unity between Christians and non-Christians, between Christians and cults that pretend to be Christian, between Christians and Roman Catholics, between Christians and liberal churches, and ecumenical alliances and things like that. He's also not talking about a fake unity wherein we pretend to agree with others, other Christians on an issue that we don't agree on, He's not saying we can always all be in the same local body in light of differences. 
He's talking about humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance for one another, leading to this diligence to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If we practice those things, we'll be well on our way to preserving Christian unity. Christian unity is usually broken by the absence of those things, the absence of humility, the absence of gentleness, the absence of patience, and the absence of toleration and love. Here are some practical suggestions in conclusion. Number one, remember that your doctrinal particulars, those things that make you differ from another Christian, are not your righteousness. You're not getting to heaven because of your unique set of convictions or interpretations. You're getting into heaven because of Christ. God doesn't love you because of your convictions. He loves you by grace, not because of works. And on judgment day, you won't be accepted or rejected on the basis of your personal doctrinal statement. You will be accepted because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith. Not by this saying, doctrine doesn't matter. You won't be standing before judgment day if you don't have sound doctrine. But what are you standing on? What is your righteousness? That's my point. You're neither better than other Christians nor worse than other Christians when it comes to being justified. You are exactly the same as them with respect to justification. Because the same thing that justifies you, the perfect righteousness of Christ, is the very same thing that justifies them. And you don't have more of the righteousness of Christ than they do. They're all in the same good boat. Number two, study Romans 14 and meditate on it and then endeavor to put it into practice. Romans 14 is the key to unity for churches. It is the failure to understand and practice Romans 14 that leads to many divisions and many church splits. Just to read a portion of that chapter. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands and falls, or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So seek to understand the motivation behind someone's view on something. Here translated their opinions. Don't just understand their position or what they're saying. What's the motivation behind it? As hard as it may be to understand, recognize that with respect to some issues, there is more than one way to please God. You can please God by eating meat or by not eating meat. Either way. Because the motivation of both groups was, we want to please the Lord. Three, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Talking about how to 
Preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. James 1, 19-20 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Listen to what people are saying. Don't chime in before they're finished. Don't just bear with the noise of what they're saying because you're waiting to say what you want to say. Listen to them. Don't be quick to speak. Listen for their dominant concerns. For instance, there's many debates about the law these days, as there has always been. You can see that from the New Testament onward. Some Christians are more concerned about rising legalism and others seem to be more concerned about rising antinomianism. Of course, we should be concerned about both. But sometimes we have more dominant concerns than, the, than another. And that could be because of experience, what we've personally experienced or what we've personally seen or the particular church we go to and the circles we run in what we've been exposed to, people's, you know, our background and so forth, that has an effect on what we are predominantly concerned with. So before you get into an argument with them, keep in mind that they probably have reasons why they are more concerned in one direction than the other. And remember that you are also concerned about the very thing they are concerned about. If you're a Christian and you're you know, you've got this antinomianism here and legalism here, and you hear this person you know, harping about legalism, well, you're also concerned about legalism, right? Should be. So if you try to pull them out of their emphasis one direction to force them to talk about the side of the spectrum you wish to emphasize, they will most likely not be able to hear you. In other words, if you try to move one person who is very concerned about the problem of legalism and self-righteousness away from that concern so that he will be more concerned about the problem of antinomianism, he will probably hear you defending legalism. <laughs> Which means that you either need to let it lie and there, it's going to have to be somebody else or there's going to have to be more opportune time than this. Or you need to really think carefully about how to speak so he's not going to think that's what you're doing. We're talking about being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So how does that work, practically speaking? How does one practice a diligence with this? You have to care about it. You have to want it. And then when it comes into those very things that tend to cause division, you have to think about, is there a, way, a different way of doing this? than the way it usually ends up. And while we're on the subject of the law, by the way, keep in mind Titus 3.9 as well. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I'm not saying that, you know, if a person is an antinomian and you want to object to that, speak against that heresy, that's, that that's what Paul means here, that that's an unprofitable and worthless thing to do or say. But just be aware, be alert from Scripture that there is something about the law that people like to quarrel about. And there are quarrels ongoing still about the law that are not particularly profitable. 
Number four, this one should be obvious, don't mock or insult other Christians who differ from you. Uh, Don't belittle them. Don't be condescending and watch your tone. It goes without saying that such things don't preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Don't interrupt them. Don't cut them off. Uh, Number five, don't run someone down to other people. That creates division, not unity. When you feel the need to disagree with someone, do it in private, not publicly. It's not absolutely necessary to do it in public. In other words, don't say things that you know will create division between this person and this person and stir up strife. Finally, number six, don't use the church business meeting to air out grievances or grind axes. Work to resolve those things in private with those who are concerned in the matter. Try to come to an understanding on such things outside of the business meeting or an elders meeting or a deacons meeting or the staff meeting or whatever you have depending on the size of church and and so forth. But public spats make everyone uncomfortable. They provoke bitterness and they're almost always entirely unnecessary because these are things that can be addressed privately. I'm sure there's a lot more things that would be practical suggestions, but those are the things that came to my mind. This is something we have to work at. We have to endeavor. We have a unity. We've been given a precious gift of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, but we have to be diligent to preserve it. And we have to be aware that the devil is indeed uh, an enemy, and he is on the prowl, and he is looking to devour and stir up strife and foment dissension and tear everything apart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all the many themes and subjects that you inspired your Apostle Paul to put in this book of the Ephesians. We're thankful that this letter was preserved in scripture for us and that we uh, profit by it uh, by our meditations on it help us to be doers of the word always lord uh, not just hearers of it i pray that you'd help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received in humility and gentleness and patience uh, bearing with one another in love and being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.